All right, well, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to jump into uh, part four of our series called Lynchpin. We've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy. Our goal is to, to look at this Old Testament book of the law. Doesn't that sound exciting? But to look at this Old Testament book of the law through the lens of Jesus. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the entire law and prophets. Everything that the Bible talked about leading up to the life of Jesus was ultimately pointing towards him. There's historical record of, of us as human beings, our, our failures and shortcomings, um, our victories, and God teaches us practical things through that. But at the end of the day, the Old Testament was the story about our great need to be reconnected with the God who made us. And that Jesus is the culmination of that. He's what it's all about. And so he fulfills the heart and spirit of the law. He fulfills the prophecies that predicted he would come to rescue and save you and me. And so we're looking at this book of Deuteronomy through the eyes of Jesus. And my hope is that we would have a firm grasp and understanding of what it is that anchors us to live this life with Jesus. That's the hope. So I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we're going to jump into part four, which is about loving people, loving people. We're going to need some help to love people. That is for sure. If nothing else, you're going to need some help to love me. Um, and my family would all say amen if they were in here this morning. All right. Well, Lord, we, we love you. Um, we say that. We believe that. We pray that. The truth is, God, you love us really, really well. And God, we're learning, we're growing in learning how to love you. And God, you've taught us that one of the primary ways that we can express our love and gratitude back to you is to love the people that you have made, to love your kids. God, you, you made us man and woman. God, each unique individual on this planet, you made us in your image. We, we bear a reflection of your divinity, of your majesty, of your glory. You put your, your fingerprint on us. And God, you love people. Despite what the practical circumstances of this life might say, despite what those who oppose to you or who doubt your very existence might say, God, in spite of all of that, the truth is you love people and God, you've called us to be like you, not perfectly like you, but to carry your heart to the world around us. God, would you teach us and equip us how to love well this morning? We need your help, um, both in teaching us what, what we do and how we do it. But God, we need your empowering presence in our lives to help us to love sacrificially. God, I admit, I struggle to do that with, with my own wife and my kids, much less my neighbors. God, would you give us what we need? Would you grow us and strengthen us so we can love well in this life? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the fall of 2000, we're going way back, October of 2000. I'm, I'm getting old. I was just thinking about this in the mirror this morning. I'm usually not that hung up on like, physical appearance, my hair getting grayer doesn't bother me, but I did kind of just notice, especially this morning, I got some, some major gray hairs coming in. <laughs> we moved into a new house over the weekend, and I think there's just some different lighting or something. Maybe I can blame it on that by our mirror, but man, it just was evident to me this morning. I'm getting old. 
Um, but in, in my heart, I'm still like a kid. And sometimes I feel really unqualified to even be up here doing what I'm doing. And maybe I am unqualified to be up here doing what I'm doing. But I feel that way. Um, but one of the things that's been really fun for me, uh, being here in Knoxville and meeting in a school, um, there's a lot of things that aren't fun about meeting in a school, but one of the things that's been fun is this is how I started. When, when I first met Grace Chapel in Leapers Fork, Tennessee, I walked in the doors and found a church home that was like no other church I'd been in, but man, it just fit. It just fit. And it, it's not the perfect church. We're not the perfect church. And there's no such thing. So if somebody's trying to tell you they have the perfect church, sorry, they're not and we're not. But it, but it was the right fit for us, man. It was home. And it was exciting to me that along the way, I got to begin participating. I got to be a part kind of of the team and, and be a part of sharing with other people what I'd received there. And so we met in a local elementary school. Um, in fact, I think my first or second, within a few Sundays of being there, they had transitioned from meeting in a cafeteria like this into the gym. They were growing. And so when I started serving in the fall of 2000, it was by invitation of the pastor. I'd been, I'd been hounding him as a, as a young 20-year-old kid for months, hanging out with him every chance I could. He was pouring into my life. He'd give me stuff to read. I'd gobble it up and go talk his head off about it. And so finally, one day in his office, he said, how would you feel about teaching our middle school kids on Sunday morning? And as a 20-year-old kid, I looked at him and thought, I mean, do you think I can do that? <laughs> that? That sounds fun. That's never entered my mind to want to do that, but that sounds great. Like something was just stirring up in me. I had, I had really become captured and believed that God really loved me. And it was just, it was changing my life. And I wanted to tell people about it. And so what that looked like for me as a 20-year-old kid was going down a hallway in a school with some metal folding chairs and I decided I want these kids to feel like there was somebody in their life that was going to listen to them, that cared about them. And so in my mind, it was going to be just amazing, you know. And so I'm setting up these chairs and we're in a circle in this hallway. And so, man, we're going to have some conversation. And so I'm going to get to know them. They're going to get to know me. It's going to be great. And so we, get, we sit in a circle. And actually, Crystal Hawkins <laughs> was Crystal Myers and was 12, this is how old I am. Crystal was in youth group the very first Sunday I ever taught. I've got a sister who was a year older than her. My sister Joanna uh, was 13, and she was stuck with her older brother now being her, her middle school pastor. I, I'm sure there were plenty of eye roll moments along the way there. Um, and so we're in this circle, and I'm thinking, this is great. All right, guys, we're going to get to know each other. Let's talk. They're all just staring at me in their awkward 12-year-old silence. And then there's the couple of them that were pumped to, like, get to talk. Oh, cool, I get to talk? Sweet. And, and so, man, it was like herding cats. And I realized really quick, quickly I was not equipped to love these kids well. But, man, I just I enjoyed it. I treasured it. And so, you know, for us, this was probably eight or ten, eight or ten middle school kids at this time. And... So we'd come into worship, we'd dismiss after worship, we'd go have our little time together and we'd have 30 or 45 minutes. And so just began to build relationship with them. And pretty quickly in, I mean, it was within a month or so, a new kid comes into class. Um, and so he comes in and man, you could just tell he was terrified. 
I think he was a sixth grader. He was super nervous. He's just kind of sitting there. And I mean, he did not say anything, the whole class. And literally, he just stared straight ahead. Well, we had this, this awesome young man in, in our, our group called Michael, named Michael. And Michael just, he would talk to anybody. He could make a joke out of anything. And so he was trying to get him to talk. And so finally, he just, he called him Stare Boy. And I was like, dude, we're not like, come on, bud. We're not going to like call names. But he called him, called him Stare Boy. Well, the funny thing was it made this kid, Zach Boone. Anybody know Zach Boone? Yeah. Made this kid, Zach Boone, laugh. And what I discovered is, you know, the nicknaming thing that began to happen, it made him feel apart somehow. And so he thought it was great. So he became Stareboy. Like for six months, he was Stareboy. And um, I don't even know when he finally became Zach, but he was Stareboy for a while. So within a few weeks, he brought a friend to, to group. And so his buddy's sitting next to him. And so sure enough, Michael's like, hey, Stareboy, who's your friend? And like neither of them would say anything. So now his buddy, Brian, became who's your friend? That was his name. So we had Stareboy and Who's Your Friend in youth group. And man, it was, anyways, this hopefully, anybody familiar with hanging out with middle school students? Yeah, okay. Y'all are with me, right? So Stareboy and Who's Your Friend. And so thankfully over the years, I was able to talk to Michael about how we make people feel more welcomed and loved and not give them crazy nicknames. But Stareboy and Who's Your Friend? And the, the beautiful thing is Zach and Brian, man, they stuck around. They became a part of the group. They, they got welcomed in. And those guys were in youth group for years. In fact, Zach Boone traveled with me years later in his early 20s when I went to Ukraine to pick up my son Micah when we were adopting him. He traveled the second time with me. Amy stayed home with our kids. She was getting very pregnant at that point. Because it's always a good idea to adopt a kid and have a baby at the same time. Anyways, all right, I'm getting sidetracked. Here, here's, my, here's my point. Here's my point. This, this week, as I was reading through this story and getting ready this morning for this message, we're going to be looking at the story of the Good Samaritan. And that, that was the lawyer's question to Jesus. Who's your friend? Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And so the whole message this morning is about who's your friend. And so... That's it. That's the only reason I talked about all of that. It doesn't really tie in in some powerful way. I just thought you might be able to remember who's your friend. Um, but what I think is cool about that is this kid, Brian, was named who's your friend, and he was a part of the family. And the truth is, even the most random person that we've never met, we have no idea who they are, we're going to skip to the end of the story this morning, they're your friend. That's who your friend is. That person right there that you see. So, hey, that connected a little bit, maybe. It was a stretch. Okay. So, uh, you like that? All right, good. So, here we go. Let's jump into this this morning. So, we're going we're gonna to kind of camp out in Luke chapter 10 and look at the story of the Good Samaritan. And my guess is many, if not all of you, are incredibly familiar with this story. But I'm hoping this morning we can see it from some angles that maybe we haven't stopped and considered it before. And so we're going we're gonna to start by just looking at the interaction that happened before Jesus told the story. You know, Jesus told a lot of stories and a lot of parables, but he told them on purpose to specific people at specific moments in time. 
And so this Good Samaritan story came about because of this interaction. So here we go. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test. Remember that. The lawyer shows up to put Jesus to the test. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my friend? Who's my neighbor? All right. Now, we've already looked at some version of this several times during the series. And it's not because we're repeating the same thing over and over again. Jesus kept pointing back to this idea that the greatest commandment was loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Last week, we unpacked a little bit of what it means to love God and, and how that connected into the book of Deuteronomy. And so really, these are linked the, one of the ways I love God well is loving people well. But also, I can't even begin to love people well if I'm not learning how to love from God. They're united. And so Jesus connected them in several places in the gospel, including in this story. We see loving God and loving people being one command that, that we're called to do, one way that we're called to live. And so... This time, Jesus kind of puts it on the lawyer. And I even wonder if this lawyer was around at other times when Jesus was talking and heard him say this. I'm not sure. I don't know. But, but what we do know is the lawyer was able to, because he knew the law well, he was able to point to those passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that say this. And so he comes up with the right answer. Here's, here's the first thing I think we need to pay attention to in this story. What is going on with this lawyer? Now, if, if you're like me, what I tend to do when I read the scripture, and really in any story, is I tend to identify with the hero. You know, I want to identify with the hero. I want to identify with the good person in the story. But often, what we should be doing is paying attention to the people who are struggling in these stories. You know, I don't want to be Pharaoh. I don't want to be Herod. In this story, I don't want to be the lawyer. But if, if we're willing to be honest, we should pay attention to some of these people that Jesus encountered who were struggling because that can be you and I very often. And so what's going on with this lawyer? I think he's doing something that is very common to most of us. There are two things that he's doing in this story. First, it says that he's testing Jesus. Now, Jesus is both God and man. And that word testing, it's really more about judging is really the, the idea behind that word. It's judging people. I, I'm trying to get a sense of who you are and if, if you're even worth my time, my energy, if you've really even got anything significant to say. And ultimately, I can feel better about myself in comparison to you. And so what the lawyer's doing in this story is he's judging people and ultimately God. I just wonder, 
How often do we do that in our lives? In order to feel right, good, settled about myself, even if it's subconsciously, I walk around comparing. And, and it leads into the second thing that he does. He doesn't just judge other people. What does he do? He desires to justify himself. That's the real root of it. The real root of testing or judging where everybody else stands is to have a sense that what I'm doing is okay, that I'm all right, that I'm in an okay place. This is a common, regular pattern in our lives if we're willing to be honest. Man, I look at and compare myself to other people. I look at circumstances and go, well, that's not right. The way you handled that's not right. The way you treated that person or treated me isn't right. And ultimately, God, look what's happening in my life right now. How could you call this love? And so I test and judge how other people handle things. And then ultimately, hidden behind that is this desire to be okay. To feel right and settled and okay in this world. To measure up. And so in this desire, we can judge and we can justify. But here's the deal. This guy is just trying to figure out what can I do to be okay and get by. But even if we assume that we want to love in a real, powerful, genuine way, even if we assume we're not trying to justify ourselves, we're not trying to judge other people, even if we assume that, this is tough. Like, like what if this lawyer is a good guy? Stop and consider this for a minute. What if he actually is a really good dude? And he's not, he's not trying to harshly judge Jesus. Or he's not just trying to justify himself because he's a cruel guy. What if he's a good dude that's genuinely trying to get a sense of how, how do I live in this world? How, how can I live well? How can I treat people well? What's the right thing that I should do? What if he's genuinely searching for how to live a life of meaning and value? See, I think most people, actually, that is a real desire. To want to live a meaningful life and do something that matters and that's valuable. Even if that's his heart and intention, that's so difficult. I mean, you can imagine why he would want to justify himself because it feels impossible to live up to a life that's meaningful. To do stuff that's valuable, that matters. I, can, I just... I feel it. I feel how much I fall short of that. I mean, I've been struggling with this. The last, I mean, I just feel like the last month to six weeks, I've just struggled with being a jerk. I'm serious. And I, and I chalk it up to, well, my life's just kind of in disarray right now. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm frustrated. We're living in different places. Our life's topsy-turvy. And I make excuses for myself and justify being short-tempered with my wife or my kids when in truth... I'm just doing what this lawyer's doing. My heart and intention is I want, to, I want to live a meaningful life and be a good friend and be a good husband, but man, it's hard. It's hard to love people. Do y'all see this? And so I, I, want to, I want to pause for a minute to identify some things that I, I just think are important for us to see because God calls us to love people and it's important and it matters but it's difficult. When Jesus points to the law here, when, when him and this lawyer are engaging, they're quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, as we said. They're also quoting from Leviticus. There's a specific passage in Leviticus. It's chapter 19, verse 18. 
where they pull this quote from that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I want to actually walk you through the context of that because it matters. So God is declaring his law. And, you know, we think of law, a lot of times we just think of rules to follow. But I want you to hear, based on what we talked about last week, that God's heart is to love us, take care of us, protect us, and help us learn how to have good relationships with each other. Through that lens, God loves us all and wants us to have healthy relationship with each other. Listen to what he is saying. This is God speaking in Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to read verses 9 through 18. Check this out. This is what he says we should do. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Don't, don't go right to the edge and don't gather all the little leftovers. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for who? The poor and for the sojourner. That's an immigrant. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So we're going to leave extra. We're going to leave room on the margins of our life to bless people who are less fortunate than us. We're not going to live so maxed out, scraping by off of every penny we've got. We're going to leave room on the margins so that we can make a difference for people in need. All right? You got that? You, you seeing that? Okay? That is love proactively doing good. Love proactively does good. In order to do that, you have to have the space and wherewithal to do it. I'm, I'm telling you, I have made different amounts of money at different phases of my life, and I've never felt like I had enough unless I changed my mentality. I, I, I remember, like, I've never felt like I had enough to start having kids. <laughs> like, when we got pregnant, it was like, oh, man, I don't have enough money to take care of kids. I, I've never, you, you always feel like you're short somehow. But the truth is, he's not talking about specific amounts of money or stuff. He's talking about a mentality and approach to life. Leave room on the edges to proactively do good for others. To do good for those who are less fortunate. I, I have been in some poor areas. I, I've been in rural villages in um, in Uganda, in the Dominican Republic, in Guatemala, in Ecuador. And what I've discovered, even in some of those remote, remote villages, there are people there who have it a little bit better than the person right there. And I have met good people in those villages who have nothing compared to me, who are generous and love their neighbor and give. There is, there is always someone who compared to us has need. And part of love is creating room on the edges to meet needs. So it's, it's proactive. It's doing good. I just want to, I'm pausing on this one more than I will the rest of the passages. Because often we think of, of love in the sense of here's things we should not do to other people, right? Here's the things we don't do. But we should proactively love. So let's continue on. Verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. 
You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So don't steal from people. Don't be false. Don't lie. And ultimately, when you take on my name, don't misrepresent me to people. He goes on. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Notice this one. This one's interesting. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. We're going to talk about that one in a second. That's an interesting line. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Don't be annoyed with those who are difficult, who, who have less than you, who struggle. Have patience with them. Don't get frustrated with them. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Don't, don't either direction, don't give favor. Don't overly favor and make excuses for folks who are poor, like hold, hold them accountable, but also don't abuse them because they're poor. Don't favor those who are rich. Hold everyone accountable accordingly. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Do not go around and slander among your people. Watch how you talk about people. Don't gossip might be how we would say it now. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the context. Some things to consider. Love's proactive, as we already mentioned. Love is also about avoiding hurting people. And there are different categories given in this passage. Physically, do not hurt people. Don't steal from them. Don't physically harm them. Take care of people physically. But he doesn't stop there. Mentally, don't hurt people. Don't lie to them. That, ca that causes distrust and struggle. And listen, the damage that happens when we lie to other people, it doesn't just affect our relationship. Have you ever been massively let down and lied to by somebody close to you? If you're like me, that starts to affect your other relationships because you wonder, well, man, if I can't trust them, can I trust them? It's damaging. And so we're meant to care for people mentally. I, I love this. That passage, um, don't make the hired worker wait until the next morning to pay them. Don't, don't leave them hanging all night. Have you ever been in one of those positions where like you were so in need financially, like paycheck to paycheck? Like, I mean, you are counting the minutes till that thing hits your account. I've been there. <laughs> I've been there. Consider the other people around you. If you say, I'm going to do this for you, do it now. Don't leave people waiting. Don't leave them hanging. I remember one time I had a boss that told me I was going to get a raise. And he never told the guy that worked underneath him that actually did all the stuff that like made it all happen. You know, the administrative guy he never told him. I went six weeks waiting for this raise. I was counting on nothing happened. Nothing. I finally had to go ask. I was embarrassed. But I'm like, hey, I was kind of counting on this. So I go to the administrative guy. He had no idea. I'm like, that, that mattered to me. That was a big deal to me. Mentally, think about how we affect people. Emotionally, don't slander. Don't curse the weak. Like things that we just do so flippantly. I mean, man, I just, 
There are times where I just get grieved when I stop and think about the way I just talked to one of my kids. I'm emotionally hurting them. Now, as I'm going through this list, A, do we agree that this would be like a good way to live? Do we agree with that? Yeah. Anybody feeling like you're already seeing all kinds of ways where you've struggled at times? Yeah, no wonder the lawyer wants to justify himself. He knows the law inside and out. He's like, dude, this is tough. It doesn't stop there. He says, it's so important how you love other people. You should actually care for your own soul by not having hatred in your heart towards somebody. How you love people can actually affect your insides. Now, this isn't a whole message this morning about hurt and bitterness, but man, if you've been seriously wounded by somebody in your life and you live with that, that hurt, that bitterness, that anger, man, it eats away. It eats away. It destroys us from the inside. It affects the lens that we look at the rest of the world through. It's good for us to resolve things with people because, man, hatred in our heart, it destroys us and our relationships. Now, if we pay attention, there's a theme here. God talked about loving people physically, mentally, emotionally, and he talked about protecting our own heart and our relationships. Guess how Jesus taught us last week to love God? With all our strength, that's physical. With all of our mind, that's mental. With our soul, that's the seat of our emotions. With our whole heart. The, the only way we can begin to fathom how in the world I can live this out is to understand that God loves me so fully and completely that as I engage in a relationship with him, he can teach me how to love physically. He can equip me to love well emotionally, mentally. He can even guard my own heart when I inevitably get wounded in relationships. He can guard it and heal it and protect it. Are, are y'all are catching this? God is actually going to use the people in our lives to teach us how he loves us and we can love him back. I can grow in my relationship with Jesus Christ by bringing him into all of these relationships. And instead of viewing my shortcomings in these relationships or other people's shortcomings, I can realize God's doing a miracle in my life. He is teaching me how to love. And he's making me the kind of person that can grasp and receive and understand his incredible love. I mean, when you've had to really forgive somebody at some point in your life and you come to terms with how hard it is to forgive somebody when they've majorly blown it with you, if you will stop long enough to then go, let me map that over to this relationship with Jesus who has forgiven me. Some of the ways I've most understood God's love in my life is through the difficult things I've walked through. If I'm willing to let him teach me in those moments. Wow, God, you love me like that? You went through that anguish and pain to forgive me? Man, you're incredible. And that also, wow, if you could do that for me, will you help me do that with this person? Do you see, do you see how these connect, how they intersect? Loving God and loving people. One final note here on this section. Five different times in this short passage, as God is telling us how to love people well, he stops to say, I am the Lord. 
Now, you could read that a couple of ways. You could read that as dad kind of going, hey, dude, you're going to treat your sister right. You're going to knock it off and be a good big brother or a good sister. And you're going to do it because I'm dad and I said so. You can read it like that. And, you know, you could make a case that maybe that's some of the heart behind that, right? Like, there's moments as a dad where I actually think, like, protecting one of my kids from another one of my kids, is, it kind of brings those emotions. Like, hey, stop hurting that one, right? Okay, so I think that's a part of it. But I think there's more than that. We're told at the dawn of creation that God made us in his image, I think what he's saying is he's saying over and over again, I am the Lord. He's saying, I have put my thumbprint, my fingerprint on these people. They're my kids. When you're loving them well, you're loving me. I'm crazy about them. That sojourner, that day laborer, that neighbor that's lied to you or robbed from you, that family member that's driving you nuts, I'm crazy about them. And even in their shortcomings and their failings and in their differences from you, they bear my image. I love them. Will you love them? He wants us to remember that we, we are looking every day at eternal beings. I just wonder when that guy cuts me off on the interstate, if I'm really thinking, there goes an image bearer of Jesus Christ. No, I'm like, there goes a jerk. <laughs> and I want to let him know, let me speed up and wave to him. Um, <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. Um, all right. <laughs> you get it, right? Like it's, it's hard. And so God's saying, remember, man, these are my people that I love. And yeah, you're messy and you blow it. But like, I love people and I want you to learn to love people. And it's hard. And so the lawyer looks at this and he's just like, man, I don't know how in the world I'm going to do this. And so he's, he's trying to justify himself. So he's like, who's my friend? Who's my neighbor? What do I do? And so then in that context, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Y'all got it? Okay, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on the rest of this, but I want to unpack a couple of things from this story. So let's just read through it. If you know it well, these might be familiar words, but then we're going to catch four things in this. I want you to watch this, okay? Four things we're going to catch. We're going to catch time. Pay attention to time in this story. Compassion. Look for compassion and empathy. Look for action. And look at what it cost the bro that took care of the guy. Time, compassion, action, and expense or cost. Here we go. Luke 10, verses 30 through 35. In the midst of this guy trying to understand and justify himself, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, this is not, um, this is not just like walking from here to Soccer Taco. This is 17 miles. And over the course of those 17 miles, they'll descend over 3,000 feet. This is a rough, hilly, treacherous terrain. Downhill, tough walk, 17 miles. That's the journey this guy's on, all right? Might change the story a little bit. This isn't a short stroll on an afternoon. So he's hiking. 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Now, a Samaritan, besides there just being this general, like, racial, social tension between Jews and Samaritans, um, they, they, they just were natural enemies. They were natural enemies. They fought, uh, they, they disagreed politically, they disagreed religiously. Um, there was some intermingling, like Samaritans were kind of like in a really... Um, I mean, just even a racially charged way, like, like a really disgusting way, we're kind of referred to essentially as half-breeds by the Jew Jewish folks. There was an intermingling of, of local people and Jewish heritage. There was just animosity. They were natural enemies. Does that make, does that make sense? I mean, we can map that over to things in our day and age. Um, because it matters to this story. Jesus is making the hero the natural enemy. Notice he doesn't make the guy that's wounded the Samaritan. He doesn't say, you should stop and help Samaritans. He's saying, when you get beat up and you're in trouble, guess who would stop for you? Your enemy. Do you see how he's flipping the story around? This lawyer would have naturally associated himself not with the Samaritan who does good. He would have naturally associated himself with the Jewish guy that got beat up and left for dead. Y'all tracking? That changes how you view the story. So the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Time, compassion, action, and expense. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell tells a story. Um, I, I was trying to remember which book it was in this morning. And I just, I couldn't remember. But in one of his books, like Tipping Point or Outliers, one of those, he tells this story about a group of college students. And these college students have just been preparing to give a speech. And they're all going to give a speech at their university on the story of the Good Samaritan. It's been ingrained in them. They've been taught it. They've been prepared for it. And so they're getting ready to go give the speech. And at the last minute, their professor comes to them in his little office when they're on their way to the auditorium. He goes, oh, man, I'm so sorry. You're actually really late. You're late for your talk. You've got to get there quick. And they send them to rush to the auditorium to give their speech on the Good Samaritan. Well, little benefits to these poor college kids, they were actually a part of a study they knew nothing about. And on their way to the speech, they were all going past someone who was hurt and in need. And like 75% of the people going to give a speech on the Good Samaritan story passed right on by, just like the priests in the story, and left the, the hurt, needy, wounded person laying there who was calling out to them asking for help. They're going to give a speech on the Good Samaritan story that they've been studying and learning forwards and backwards, and they go right past the person in need. 
Did they do that because they were jerks? No. The point of the story is they were in such a hurry, they didn't have time to do what they would have done if they weren't in such a hurry. Most of our issue with helping people is we don't live life with enough time or margin to actually stop and help people. We're so busy and on the treadmill of running our own lives that we couldn't even see the person in need if they were right in front of us. The first thing Jesus is trying to help us see here is you've got to actually have the bandwidth and time to see the need. We, we have got to learn to structure our lives in such a way where built into our lives is the ability to see the needs of others and love them well. Many of us can't even recognize when the people living in our own house are struggling and in need. It takes a moment of a blow up or a breakdown to even recognize they're in need because we're so going and going, we can't even see they're struggling, much less a stranger on the side of the road. Time is an essential component to loving people well. And if there is one thing, and y'all probably heard me talk about this a bunch because it's, it's a big one for me. In our culture, we go at such a breakneck pace that we don't build in time for our own rest, much less the ability to love others. If, if we had margin, we would have the rest we need and then we would, we would have enough room to breathe that we could not only recognize the needs around us, but go, hey, I've got time to take care of that. I got time to meet that need, to fill that need. So one of the first things Jesus is teaching this guy here is, hey, have time to actually slow down and meet somebody and meet the need. Secondly, you've got to have compassion. This is, this is why it's so important to see that Jesus is telling this story from a different perspective. You don't have true compassion for people unless you could actually see yourself in their shoes. Until you can understand that that could be me, you'll never really have compassion. One of our biggest problems is we look at people in need and we just think, well, they kind of got themselves there. I bet if you thought about it, we do that a little bit more than we care to admit. Probably even at a subconscious level. The people that are struggling or hurting, they got themselves there. Now, there may be some truth to that, but guess what? You and I can get ourselves there really fast too. We can make mistakes. Life can just come at us sideways in waves. I've known good, faithful, hardworking, honest Jesus followers who've just seen their life go sideways when just these storms come crashing. And it's like, they don't deserve that. Of course they don't. Life happens. Tragedy that's unasked for happens. We as fallen, broken people, we make mistakes. And we get hurt along the way. How easy would it be to judge this guy who just looks like a mess on the side of the road is like, man, who knows what this guy's deal is. He's a regular, normal, respectable guy. He got beat up and left for dead. He didn't ask for that. Compassion. If we're going to learn to love well, 
it not only requires time, it requires compassion, which means I could picture myself in that person's shoes. I can, I can actually imagine getting myself there. Or if I'm really honest, I already know I've kind of been there before. If I'm really honest, I, I've done that. I've gotten myself in that kind of a situation. Empathy, compassion, seeing ourselves in someone else's shoes. Time, compassion. Third, action. See, so, some of us think that compassion itself is love. We, we live in a world that likes to celebrate good thoughts and ideas. How beautiful it would be if we did this for people. And we talk about it as if somehow in the talking we've accomplished it. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now look at verse 18. This is so crucial. Little children. See the, the fatherly heart? He's like, I get it. It's tough. But come on, listen to me for a minute. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That word, that word, the word, the word, word there, that's kind of hard to say. The word word there, the Greek word behind that, it means an expression of intelligence. Let's not just love with an expression of intelligence. I'm so guilty of this, man. I'll sit around and in a conversation with a friend, we'll solve the whole world's problems in like half an hour. It's just so obvious what should be done. We just do X, Y, and Z and it all be taken care of. Love is not in an expression of intelligence. Now, when you see it says there, don't love in word or talk, doesn't that sound repetitive? Those are two different words. The word talk is more about the tongue, and it's actually about expressing something beautifully. What he's saying is, hey, you can have all the intelligent conversation you want about how we can love people well. And you can poetically write out just beautifully how we can solve all these problems or help all these people or just even have a beautiful written expression of love and it's meaningless if there's not action behind it. Now, I actually think that people are way more complex than the categories that we put them in. But if we let ourselves get easily labeled, if we allow that to happen and we get categorized, like, there's people that would be in the conservative Republican category that kind of get the accusation of being the uncompassionate people at times, right? We can just kind of, hey, everybody just needs to do their part and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and follow the rules and we'll all be okay. Like, we could fall into that category. Or those who might be more on the liberal or Democrat side might have a huge heart of compassion for people in need. But maybe we avoid some of the practical aspects of how that walks out. The truth is, I think we all kind of live on that spectrum and shouldn't allow ourselves to so easily wear labels. As Jesus followers, we should be able to be convicted to not only not settle for just great ideas and loving thoughts or just settle for practically do this. 
we should be able to be people moved with compassion that can see ourselves in other people's places that are then moved to specific tangible action to help. Notice what tangible action does. It's in deed and in truth. The word deed there means work, labor, performance. It's going to take effort to love well. If you can talk about it all day long and it requires nothing specific from you, it's just a nice idea and a good thought. But that word truth there, we love in truth. It means what it sounds like. It means true. It means reality. It actually means, get this, it means the unveiled reality lying behind the appearance. Man, I hope you all can catch that. The unveiled reality lying behind the appearance. We accept way too often that the appearance is what's really going on. Instead of slowing down, having time, having compassion, engaging with action to see the real person in the real need at the root of the problem and asking God to help us. Because sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to speak truth into a situation. There's times where the person that we're called to love needs to hear some truth. And that's why the Bible tells us to speak truth in what? In love. But it does tell us to speak truth. We separate them somehow. Like love is sugarcoating and not being honest with people about what they really need and what the real problem is and loving them enough to speak truth to them. But also sometimes we just settle for the truth part. I'll just speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Maybe they'll figure it out. No, let's have a heart of love and compassion that that will say the hard necessary thing because this is a person made in God's image that he loves. Is this, is this making sense? Yeah? That, man, well, thank you, bud. Right? Like we got this. This is, I get it. This is challenging, but man, this is truth. We need to have time. We need to have compassion. We need to be able to put love in action. I was texting with, with my friend Jerger. Y'all know Chris Jerger? I was texting with my friend Jerger. He's been traveling a bit, and we've just been keeping up with each other. They're walking through a, a hard road um, with their daughter who went to be with Jesus when she overdosed just, man, a couple months back. It's been so cool, some of the stuff God's been doing in his heart. And, and he texted me this. And I'm like, I'm using that. We were talking about the word charity. You know, charity, like we even use it to describe like charitable organizations. And we think of organizations that do good. You know, that word charity is an old Bible word. You know, your newer modern translations say love now. You know, the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. That word was charity back in the day. And what's, what's interesting about the word charity is we associate it with action. In our English mind, we just associate love with emotion or feeling. But God's kind of love, see that word charity is the word agape in the Greek. It's the kind of love that's always associated with God. In fact, that word agape, charity, it's in John 3.16. For God so loved in action the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's in this passage we just read, 1 John 3.16. By this we know charity that he laid down his life for us. So I love this quote by Jerger. He sent me this quote and we were talking about charity and love and he just texted me, he said, something God's been showing me. Our act of charity 
is stewardship of his love moment by moment. I love that. I'm going to read that again. Our act of charity is stewardship of his love moment by moment. See, the truth is, it's, it, this is a hard message to preach. It's probably a hard message to listen to. It sounds like this list of, man, I can't live up to this. You're right. None of us can. Jesus is the one who loves well and fully and sacrificially. He's the one that gave time. He's, he's given his whole eternity to loving us well. And then he inserted himself into our time and lived a life of charity. All he did was give his time for people. He was a man of compassion. Look at his life. He constantly saw the needy person. He saw the skeptic. He saw the lawyer. He saw the discarded outsider. He saw the sinner. He saw every person on the political, social, racial spectrum. And he had compassion because he came to be one of us. And then, man, you talk about love and action. His whole life was love and action up to and through his greatest act of love on the cross. The truth is we can't, won't, and shouldn't try to live up to this law. Jesus fulfilled it. And now what God wants to do is so radically pour out his love into our lives that moment by moment we can walk in charity and we can steward that love and give it away. And we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. We're going to blow it. We're going to miss opportunities. But the, the path of our life can be a path of walking in the love of God and giving that away to other people, no matter the cost, no matter the expense. I, I'm not going to unpack this, this fourth point because I want to wrap up, but just really simply, love was time, it was compassion, it was action, and it cost something. It cost something. First of all, that bro hiked 17 miles on a hillside leading a donkey, of all things, with a wounded man on it. I can't even imagine what that journey was like. And then when he got to where he was going, he cared for the guy himself at the end. He didn't just leave him there. If you read the story, he stayed exhausted from his journey and cared for the man's wounds at the end and spent the night with him. Then the next day, he pays for the continued care for this man that he's just met and says, if that's not enough, I'll cover the rest on my way back through town. It cost him something to love this perfect stranger well. And so Jesus, in conclusion, wraps up the whole story and he looks back at the lawyer and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer looked at him and said, the one who showed him mercy. Man, I've been given mercy. I'm blown away by the mercy of God. He gave it to me a long time ago and he gives it to me still. He's shown me mercy. And it's, it's an honor and a joy that I could even give a little bit of that away to other people. And so the lawyer says, it's the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Man, may that be true of me and you. My, my sincere desire this morning
And it's not that we would leave here feeling beat up or discouraged about how hard it can be to love people, but that we would see that this is how God takes care of us. This is how he loves us. We're the beat up left for dead person on the side of the road, man, life's hard. And God loves us this way. And he invites us to experience his love and learn little by little, step by step, to be the kind of people that make life a little easier for others. To be the kind of people that, that can love people through tragedy, that can be patient with people, that can speak truth to people, motivated by compassion, that we have time for one another, that we build margins in our lives, on our calendars and in our checkbook, so that we have the ability, even at expense to ourselves to love others in need. I wanna be that kind of person. I wanna live a life of meaning. And I'm thankful that God has loved me so well and he lets me be a part of that story. Let's pray. God, I just simply wanna pray that you would help us go and do likewise. Jesus, thank you for your incredible love that just plays out over and over through our whole life so consistently, so faithfully, in so many ways. God, would you help us be the kind of people that have time, that have compassion, that will take action, and even at expense to ourselves, will love others well. God, from the person living at home with us to the stranger on the street, God, that we would look at people and go, that's my friend, that's my neighbor. Help us to love them well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.